Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron, Principal of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of politics, policy, culture, economics, and business. Our topic today, America's True Healthcare Crisis. You can find our Political Risk Brief in written form at our website, barronpa.com, in the library section. And let me begin today's conversation with my trusted colleagues, Johnny Fluger, our Chief Strategist, and Jeremy Furchgott, Director, by just reading the opening sentence of that political risk brief. America's healthcare crisis primarily reflects plummeting population health, not a systemic failure in care. And that really does encapsulate the conversation we're going to have today in what is really going on with American health, not simply American health care. As I mentioned, joining me again today, Johnny Fluger. Johnny, welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here again. And Jeremy Furchgott. Thank you very much. If you listen to the typical policy dialogue on healthcare, you would believe that addressing America's healthcare crisis is simply a matter of greater efficiency, that by implementing some combination of reduced costs on technology, on the way care is delivered, some constraints on corporate profits, that a mix of those types of reforms will solve the problem of skyrocketing healthcare costs. But in fact, all the policy solutions aimed at delivering on one or more of those opportunities really are nothing more than false hope. In truth, plummeting population health is overwhelmingly the driver of skyrocketing healthcare costs. And nothing that does not address that fundamental condition or that fundamentally worsening condition is really going to make much of a difference. Frederick Asasi in his testimony in front of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, noted, Despite spending two or three times more than other wealthy nations on healthcare, we live shorter lives. In encapsulating the condition of America's healthcare spending, which is not to say America's health, there are a few statistics worth noting. Presently, national health expenditures represent almost 18% of GDP. U.S. per capita healthcare spending increased sixfold since 1970, adjusting for inflation, and those numbers continue to rise at a rapid rate. President Biden during the campaign and now as president has advanced the democratic position on health care that has been characteristic for the past several years. And even as support among Democrats for Medicare for all has increased, he continues to push forward a vision of health care that calls for greater intervention without a total takeover of health care uh, by the government. What I proposed is that uh, we expand Obamacare and we increase it. We do not wipe any. And one of the big debates we had with 23 of my colleagues trying to win the nomination that I won, we're saying that Biden wanted to allow people to have private insurance still. They can. They do. They will under my proposal. What's really different is the position of Republicans. Jeremy, one of the most remarkable developments has been the shift on the right regarding health care policy. Give us a sense of what's going on and the nature of that change. Fundamentally, we see Republicans less eager to pursue private sector solutions to addressing the health crisis, largely due to shifting voting demographics. If you take a look at who is actually voting for Republicans, there's been a massive shift over the past decade plus. In 2008, rural voters favored the GOP by 16% compared to roughly 36% in 2016 and 2020. 
So the margin has more than doubled since 2008. And this change in the voting base of the Republican Party has understandably changed the party's traditional opposition to government intervention in healthcare. This change in the electoral base is really important because according to the CDC, rural residents often have, and I quote, limited access to healthy foods, fewer opportunities to be physically active compared to their urban counterparts, which can lead to conditions such as obesity and high blood pressure, higher rates of smoking, which increases the risk of many chronic diseases, end quote. And so the result is unfortunate, but perhaps predictable. And I quote again from the CDC, Americans in rural areas more frequently die from preventable causes than Americans in suburban and urban areas, end quote. So to really understand this shift on the right, you have to look at who is actually voting for Republicans in office and what is their underlying health. And Johnny, talk about the relationship between the phenomenon that Jeremy just described and the broader movement within the Republican Party away from libertarian economic philosophy. Jonathan, I think that since the Great Recession, there has been this sense brewing that the Republican conservative supply side, whatever you want to call them, policies that that have been pursued ardently over the last three decades were no longer working for working Americans. The financialization of the economy, the focus on taxes and regulation, and the de-emphasis on institutions that could provide social stability were reflected I think in the dislocations of the uh, mortgage crisis and the fact that you know many Republican voters, for example, lost their homes and lost their um, good credit ratings, and I think President uh, Trump, when he when he came into office, reflected this trend, this um, introspection, reaching a tipping point and and driving policy outcomes, and we saw him do things like impose tariffs, which was just about the most anathema policy for Republicans over the preceding 30 years. I think we're beginning to see that as well in healthcare. And if you look at American Affairs, which is probably the the leading uh, journal channeling this new populism um, that has that is really driving the GOP, if you look back at at uh, one of their first issues, they editorialized, quote, there is no basis on which to believe that corporate health insurance bureaucracies ration care in a manner any more just or efficient than a government bureaucracy would, close quote. So that that effectively is a, a, a conservative defense of, uh, of something akin to Medicare for all. Uh, charitably, we could say government intervention in the healthcare system on the basis that the private sector is ill-equipped to ensure human flourishing for working Americans. And contrast that with the rhetoric of, for example, Newt Gingrich in the 1990s and battling against President Bill Clinton's efforts to reform healthcare with much more government intervention uh, and, and how Gingrich thundered against such intrusions uh, by government 
uh, into private healthcare markets. They want your money to build their bureaucracy. Their entire structure depends on getting control of your money. This is not about health. This is about power. If you are not actively, passionately, directly involved, if you are not educating your members and you're not explaining to your friends and you're not out there in the game, you're going to end up losing your health care. And you're going to end up with a mediocre, government-run, ration system dominated by bureaucrats with political decisions made in Washington. I want to add, Jonathan, that many of the leaders in health care policy on this, the House and Senate floors were former doctors, perhaps most notably former Senator Tom Coburn. And so you had within the GOP caucus this group of former physicians who all had their own healthcare practices, many of them in, in rural or suburban areas. Many of the representatives, the Republican representatives from Georgia, from the Atlanta area uh, in recent decades have, have been doctors, for example, and that was a key area of electoral strength for Republicans. And I think over the last 30 years, since the Hillary Care debate, what you've seen is really an atrophying of those ranks within the Republican caucus. I think the reason for that is because independent doctor's offices have largely been bought up by large hospital systems and uh, insurers, and there is no longer the, the same base of Republican voting doctors who are you know, doing well financially and running their own practices that existed in 1995 when Newt Gingrich took power. Those doctors are retired. Those doctors' offices are, are now part of larger systems that are investing a lot in, for example, healthcare IT. And there's less of that strong, you know, primary care doctor in the community uh, presence in many places that, that fed into a um, Republican congressional view of healthcare policy as something that should be driven by a free market led by these doctors. And Johnny, whether or not those members of Congress hailed from smaller practices or larger health healthcare companies, so contrasting a Tom Coburn with a Bill Frist, who was the Republican Senate leader and whose family, of course, founded a very large healthcare company, uh, all of them were extremely strong supporters of private sector healthcare. And I think the point you're making is an excellent one, which is those figures are no longer nearly as prominent uh, within the healthcare debate on the right. And to the extent they're even uh, present in the Republican Party, they're no longer nearly as confident in supporting the private sector as the best or the exclusive uh, force in, in favor of, of healthcare. I think also, Jonathan, so many individuals on the right have been highly laudatory of innovation in the economy and technology over the last 20 years, which has produced, in many cases, fabulous outcomes that I think the center of gravity on the right in terms of healthcare policy has moved from thinking of doctors as the linchpin of America's healthcare response to thinking of pharmaceutical innovation, the companies that are producing the COVID-19 vaccines as, as part of Operation Warp Speed. There's a sense that pharmaceutical innovation should be what drives healthcare policy and less doctors should drive healthcare policy. And 
there's an uneasy tension between that view, which is a residue of the established economic orthodoxy of the last 20 and 30 years with this new rising populism that questions corporate involvement in industries seen as as central to the success of the working class. So fundamentally, what's happened is the bulwark in the political system against greater government intervention in healthcare, the Republican Party, has moved away from that position and really much closer to the Democratic Party position of government as the principal force for providing health care in the society. And so that, re- that change on the right, as much as anything else, uh, I think explains the current politics on health care, of course, are much less favorable to private sector health care. In the healthcare policy debate, there are three villains, three culprits that are commonly blamed for skyrocketing healthcare costs. And they are corporate profits, inefficiency, and technological innovation, especially pharmaceutical innovation. And although those factors do play some role, they cannot possibly account for the dramatic rise in healthcare expenditures that have occurred in the last two or three decades. Jeremy, Although it might seem obvious, how do corporations end up shouldering so much of the blame for increased healthcare costs? Well, first of all, Jonathan, this is a bipartisan criticism of healthcare companies. For example, during the Democratic primary, now Vice President Kamala Harris stated Even though they have insurance, they will be out a $5,000 deductible, $5,000 deductible right. when they walk through those Senator, doors. Senator That's Harris, what insurance companies I, are I, doing I, I, in America I, today. Her criticism is mirrored by Republican Senator Mike Braun. What's going to go wrong with the healthcare industry? If they keep digging in to try to keep the benefits of what's made them 18 to 20 percent of the GDP, without thinking about reforming themselves to be there in a healthier fashion for employers, individuals across the spectrum, you know, they're going to make the ultimate mistake. Despite such claims on the left and on the right, healthcare profits cannot possibly account for the $3.8 trillion that the United States spent in 2019 on healthcare expenditures. There are various rankings out there of the most profitable industries, the most profitable companies, and really any of these rankings show that healthcare companies or the healthcare sector are not among the most profitable companies or sectors of the U.S. economy. For example, the Stern School of Business at New York University has a ranking of industries by net margins. And that ranking does not include any healthcare segment among the top 10. So pharmaceutical companies are not there in the top 10. Insurance is not up there in the top 10. Hospitals are not there. And in fact, if you look at the healthcare support services category in this ranking, healthcare support services includes insurance companies. They actually earn some of the lowest gross margins compared to other industries, scoring in the bottom 10 of the 95 industries evaluated. There are various other rankings out there which point to the same pattern, which is that healthcare companies generally are profitable. Their profits are not the highest in the U.S. economy. For example, 
many tech companies and financial services companies are much more profitable than healthcare companies. So a just quick glance at the numbers indicates that corporate profits do not seem to be the underlying problem. So then we turn to the next conventional villain, which would be this very broad category of inefficiency. And I find this remarkable on two levels. First, when people blame inefficiency for skyrocketing healthcare costs, it presumes that any system that delivers care could somehow be super efficient or significantly more efficient than we currently have. And although I'm sure that improvements can be made in healthcare, it's hard to imagine any healthcare system that would achieve a level of efficiency that would make any meaningful difference in overall national health expenditures. And second, it resembles very much, I think, the debate about overall government spending and budgets in the United States and the claim, which was very common on the right in the 1990s, that somehow if you eliminated waste, fraud, and abuse, you could bring uh, federal spending in line and achieve some sort of balanced budget. I think that this argument uh, is fundamentally wrong. Blaming inefficiency is fundamentally unhelpful because it can't possibly produce a meaningful response that will truly improve the situation and really distracts us from the core issue, which is this question of collapsing population health. We see that failure of care coordination only accounts for 2% of those expenditures. And if you add failure of care delivery and administrative complexity, you get to 13%. So at most, inefficiency accounts for 13% of total healthcare costs. That is not nearly as high as the evangelists of inefficiency would have us believe. And moreover, the idea that that 13% number, even if it's accurate, could ever be brought significantly lower under any system, whether it's private sector dominated or whether it's public sector dominated, I think is, 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 is quite unrealistic. The leading exponent of the idea that inefficiency is rife in the healthcare system is Dr. Atul Gawanda, who, who until recently was the CEO of Haven, the healthcare company that was created by Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase. And he famously argued when he gave the commencement at Harvard Medical School in 2011 that producing better care in, in the United States required better coordination. He used the metaphor of pit crews at a NASCAR race. And based on the national health expenditures data that we've examined, Jonathan, that's just not the case from a macro perspective, that having uh, everybody working together to drive small elements of inefficiency out of the system here and there, akin to Japanese manufacturing of the 70s and 80s and the Toyota business system, that won't actually reduce healthcare costs that much in this country. Not to mention that people are not race cars, so that uh, it's going to be very hard, I think, to apply the theory um, in the real world, which is what uh, which is what often happens. Turning to the third villain, uh, commonly cast in this story of rising healthcare costs, is technology and the idea that this all of these new incredible technologies that produce incredible results allegedly just happen to be uh, extremely expensive. And so again, the 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 costs of technology and technological innovation 
is a driver, significant driver of rising healthcare costs. There are two vectors to this argument. One vector to this argument is medical devices. Think replacement hips are driving up the cost of healthcare. The second vector to this argument is that drugs for chronic diseases and rare diseases are driving up the cost of healthcare for all patients. And Johnny, when we've looked at the, at the literature, what is the reality? Jonathan, if we look at medical devices, spending on devices and in, in vitro diagnostics has basically stayed flat at 6% of total expenditures over the past 30 years. And then if we look at prescription drugs at pharmaceuticals, we see that out-of-pocket prescription drug spending, which is what policymakers focus on, according to OEC data, only accounts for 0.4% of total U.S. household spending. It's clear that the burden on the healthcare system is not singularly out-of-pocket prescription drug spending. And part of the reason for that is the, the strong presence of generic drugs in the U.S. market. Yeah, and if we think about U.S. spending on pharmaceuticals at approximately, I think it is 13%, Canada is 16.2%, uh, you know, France is 13%, uh, you know, Australia is 13.8%. So it doesn't appear that the United States is in any way far beyond uh, its, its peer countries when it comes to pharmaceutical spending. So if, in fact, the main issues are not really the cost of technology or corporate profits or inefficiency then the question becomes, you know, what is really going on? What is really happening uh, in the United States that's, that's driving these incredibly high healthcare expenditures in recent years? And a few things are worth noting. First, that life expectancy in the United States has stagnated since 2009 and currently ranks lowest among the G7. According to a recent study of 2016 data, quote, modifiable risk factors, end quote, accounted for nearly one quarter of healthcare expenditures in that year, or $730.4 billion of total healthcare spending. And finally, researchers estimate that individual behavior determines the overall health and risk of premature death of an individual by 40%. So the spending's not the issue. Deteriorating health is the issue. And that's really where I want to turn the conversation now. So Americans increasingly require more medical care, and a large portion of healthcare cost that results actually has to do with behavioral factors. So I'll run through a few specific examples very briefly. Let's start with heart disease and obesity. The Milken Institute found, I quote, chronic diseases driven by the risk factor of obesity and overweight accounted for $480 billion in direct healthcare costs, with an additional $1.24 trillion in indirect costs due to lost economic productivity. So obesity is not always directly a result of behavior, but it sometimes can be. And that's an enormous factor that, as many European elites love to point out, is a significant problem in the United States compared to some other countries. For example, according to the CDC, about three quarters of adults aged 20 and over are overweight or obese. Another big area is one that many political leaders have focused on in the past few years, and that is the problem of drug addiction. So drug addiction, of course, is not a uniquely American phenomenon, but is a, is a much 
more severe problem in the United States than in other parts of the world. For example, a recent McKinsey Global Institute study noted that in the United States, mortality from substance abuse disorders is six times higher than in Western Europe. So there's a real problem in the United States, and that's why this issue has captured the attention of so many p- political elites. Princeton economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton have been some of the most prominent academics raising awareness of this phenomenon. Ann Case explained, After a century of progress on mortality, um, toward the end of the 20th century, mortality rates for white non-Hispanics in the U.S. started to move in the wrong direction. And what we're finding is that for every successive birth cohort, so people born, say, in 1960 relative to 1950 or 1980 relative to 1970, Um, what we call deaths of despair, deaths from suicide, from drug overdose, from alcohol-related liver diseases, are on the upswing. And as many political leaders have pointed out, the problems of addiction and deaths of despair really tie into so many other challenges that the United States has faced, changes in family structure, changes in community structure, changes in employment, jobs being lost. And these changes have very direct effects on healthcare spending in the United States. So we have this confluence of declining population health, political demography shifting in ways that incent Republicans to be more favorable to government intervention in healthcare, and overall rising populism on the left and the right that is making the political system more hostile to corporate interests, including and perhaps especially in healthcare. So Johnny, what does that mix, that combination of factors pretend about political risk in the healthcare sector in the coming months and years? I think we're already beginning to see what we call a melee between different forces different subsectors within healthcare fighting each other to assign blame for rising healthcare costs. And I think we're going to see more of that in the weeks, months, and years ahead, Jonathan, where one subsector within within healthcare is going to try and work with policymakers to impose regulation on the other sectors. And it's going to be a free-for-all. And so, Johnny, you're referencing this idea that we've explored for some time of a soft nationalization of the healthcare sector, where it's not a complete government takeover, but substantial components of the healthcare system are either directly nationalized or come under such heavy regulation that they're effectively nationalized and those industry subsegments become captive uh, to government agencies and decision makers. Jeremy, talk about in in the work at the firm uh, what we see occurring as the various components of private sector healthcare, to Johnny's point, maneuver to try to be the ones who are not blamed uh, and ultimately not suffer the worst effects financially of soft nationalization. Jonathan, we see different types of healthcare companies trying to divert blame for high healthcare costs. Recently, one of the major healthcare associations sent a letter to the chair of the Federal Trade Commission asking FTC to 
look at a different category of healthcare companies' alleged anti-competitive activity. So we see the effort to divert and shift blame quite explicitly. And it seems that companies understand that the federal government is likely to take some kind of action against some part of the healthcare industry. And companies are just hoping that they're not going to be the ones to suffer the most severe effects. To Jeremy's point, one particular area of interest for policymakers is in antitrust. Now, we've on this podcast before talked about antitrust and the, the renewed an- interest in, in antitrust vis-a-vis tech companies, but all the folks who are interested in more antitrust enforcement vis-a-vis tech companies are also interested in more enforcement vis-a-vis healthcare companies. And what we have seen recently is a bipartisan coalition in Congress enacting into law a an obscure bill called the Competitive Health Insurance Act, which effectively took away the federal antitrust exemption for uh, both for-profit and non-profit insurers. As our listeners assuredly know, insurance has been regulated historically in the U.S. at the state level, and this clarified that state regulation of insurance products did not preempt federal antitrust oversight. And similarly, we see an increasing number of antitrust decision makers, such as the new acting FTC chair, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, who was a Democratic commissioner during the Trump administration and has been elevated to acting chair during the Biden administration. She very famously, in an address at the Center for American Progress some years ago, called explicitly for removing the exemption on antitrust scrutiny of nonprofit hospitals. A lot of the hipster antitrust thought leaders have argued that there has been unconscionable, from their perspective, consolidation in the healthcare industry, precisely because so many of the players in the industry are nonprofits, not subject to federal oversight. And so they want to subject these entities to federal antitrust scrutiny, and I think they're likely to get it based on all of the trends we've observed. So again, to Jeremy's point, we see antitrust scrutiny of healthcare growing arguably as rapidly as antitrust scrutiny of big tech, just not garnering as much press coverage. One of the remarkable things that I think reflects the broader populist moment is the degree to which throughout the economy, participants are striving to be seen as creators, as manufacturers, as producers, and to avoid at almost all costs being cast as middlemen. And this very much is playing out in the healthcare system where those who are presenting themselves as again manufacturers in some respect or another have the high political ground and by that, what I mean is not necessarily substantively, but, but rhetorically, stylistically, have the high ground relative to their healthcare industry peers and other subsectors who are you know, not, not engaged in directly providing, providing care or directly in manufacturing. 
Jeremy, talk about this middleman phenomenon and, and its importance and how you see it playing out. Would you see it really across the economy? Take a look at Tesla, for example. It's not a coincidence that Tesla, the company whose stock prices skyrocket over the, over the past uh, year, is a company that is going direct to consumer. They do not sell through auto dealerships. And I think that reflects not only perhaps some kind of quantitative business decision on Tesla's part, but I think it also, it's channeling an understanding that people want products that are as direct as possible. People want locally grown vegetables from their farmer stand if they can afford it. People want... uh, People, people don't want what they perceive to be a middleman being involved. And this is affecting the healthcare industry with accusations of PBMs and insurers of being middlemen. But the origin of this phenomenon is much broader than the healthcare industry. We see this play out on the right and the left. Uh, on the right with libertarians, this idea, and I'll engage in a bit of a caricature, of everyone should procure their health care directly. So heaven forbid you gash your head, you put some gauze on it while you call around and negotiate your own prices before you go get yourself stitched up. And then on the left, just having government uh, be the provider in one way or another of health care and eliminating all of the, again, all of the so-called, from their point of view, middlemen. So the left and the right each has its own version of the go direct story, very much along the lines of what you've described, Jeremy. And that puts a lot of healthcare companies, almost all healthcare companies uh, in a very tough spot because at some level, you can argue that almost everyone is a middleman because again, healthcare delivery uh, or all the services, uh, all of the capabilities around healthcare, uh, you know, again, are, are implemented uh, by people who do not actually create the offering. And so that, that somehow that has, uh, you know, evolved to the point where the entire sector has taken on a higher degree of political risk. Even the manufacturers themselves, Jonathan, are not immune from risk. If you look at current press coverage, you see a lot of criticism of the board members and executives of the drug companies, the biotechs involved in Operation Warp Speed, and the other federal efforts vis-a-vis COVID-19, selling stock and taking profits before the vaccines that they have rolled out have been deployed broadly throughout U.S. society. And that criticism is a predicate to an argument effectively of war profiteering, of taking advantage of crony relationships with the government to line their own pockets. That argument has not been made in many cases explicitly yet, but even the manufacturers who have the halo of the research and development of the innovation, of the creation of the manufactured product, even they are under intense scrutiny. Unlike, I believe, what existed 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It is not surprising that politicians are reluctant to point the finger at voters for the habits, for the behaviors that are driving so much of the population health crisis and therefore the healthcare expenditure crisis in the United States. But I think it is surprising that the topic itself of declining population health seems to get relatively so little attention. 
Johnny and Jeremy, why do you think that is? Jonathan, I think that part of what's going on is that the the behavioral factors that lead to declining health outcomes and increasing healthcare costs are in part exacerbated by government in the first place. So the collapse of the nuclear family, the collapse of neighborhood and community structures, uh, the loss of jobs that has taken place over the past couple decades. It's very uncomfortable for elected officials to point to those true drivers of health problems when government policy has either sat idly by in certain cases or in other cases uh, accelerated these problems. So I think that people are uncomfortable acknowledging what's really going on. Jeremy, I would add to that something else, which is I think if there's one point of consensus in American society, it is the notion that consumption is almost always good. We are a consumer-driven society. We are all about the literal acts of consumption across multiple realms. And so I think it's very hard for a society that is so vested in consumption, not only economically, which I think is fairly straightforward, but civilizationally, ideologically, theologically even, that to be an American really increasingly is to consume. And that conversation, discussion, criticism of consumption as the necessary path to improve health just runs contrary to so many of the of the deepest trends in modern America. And therefore, I think it's an area, it's just very tough, uh, very tough to go down you know, that, that road. I also think that since World War II, policymakers have outsourced a lot of policymaking to experts, be they medical experts or scientific experts in the case of healthcare or experts in other fields. I think that staring the population deterioration that's occurred in the country directly in the face would really call into question a lot of what we have taken to calling and will soon have a a political risk brief on, which is the fifth branch of government, the individuals outside government who act as the idea generators, incubators, and, and advisors to government officials. It's very easy for members of Congress to enact a statute that says CBO do this or GAO do this and CBO and GAO call on their outside advisors to provide input. But when that whole apparatus of scientific expertise appears not to have actually improved outcomes, outcomes have actually gotten worse. That's a very scary thought. And I think people don't want to revisit the entire constellation of institutions and individuals who advise the government. Staring this more directly in the eye means a crisis of confidence in a lot of the institutions that surround government. To close today's conversation, we see this combination of declining support on the right for private sector healthcare, 
intensifying support on the left for government-driven direct solutions that displace the private sector amidst a implicit, if not explicit, crisis in confidence regarding the expert class that has been at the helm when so many of these deleterious trends have unfolded when it comes to population health. And we have, of course, COVID-19, which is not only a health crisis, but of course, an economic crisis that almost certainly will exacerbate not only the health condition of the American people, but the very factors politically I just cited. So we take all of that together. Jeremy, describe what business leaders, policy observers, and others should expect uh, in the coming several years on healthcare from Washington and from state capitals. I think the basic expectation should be that health outcomes are going to continue to decline. Government is going to continue to try to blame profits, inefficiency, and technological innovation. And there's going to continue to be a misalignment between the true causes of healthcare spending and the policy solutions that are being pursued. As that divergence increases, as health outcomes worsen and healthcare spending continues to increase, companies are going to be blamed more and more. And the medical melee that Johnny described, where companies blame one another for the problems in the industry, that effort of blaming other companies is going to intensify. And companies are going to be defending themselves against attacks by their industry peers more and more frequently. Johnny, a final word? This can go on for a long time. We've seen a similar dynamic playing out in education over recent decades. We, according to OECD data, spend more per pupil than just about any other country in the world. And our pupils' outcomes are deteriorating and deteriorating and deteriorating. And that has resulted in tremendous political pressure within and outside of the educational system and a whole blame game between the different forces and voices in education has resulted from that. So you have the charter school advocates fighting the public schools, fighting the teachers unions, fighting the standardized testing proponents, and on and on. And I think what we are likely to see with healthcare, separate from any particular legislative outcome in the near term, is more blame game akin to education. Johnny, thank you for your contributions. And Jeremy, thank you for a great discussion. I want to express our appreciation to Diana Engelman, who makes these podcasts possible, to Danielle Weinrich, who produces the research that informs our conversation, and to our fearless producer, Noah. To all of you, thank you for joining us today on The Political Risk Brief.